everybody. I'm wearing a tie today from Wilberforce University, uh, right down the road uh, from where where we live. Um, proud to wear that today. Um, today is Arbor Day, and got a picture of Alice and Nick's children coming up, uh, planting a buckeye tree. There you go. So this was actually on Grady's birthday, uh, which was Earth Day just a, just a couple of days ago. And uh, for Laura, who you got another one of the Buckeyes that came out of our yard. This one came out of our yard. So it's a, a brother or sister or something, I guess. This is really a special day uh, about the importance of planting trees for the future, uh, Arbor Day. Uh, this is something that I learned from my father, my two grandfathers. Um, they were all loved to plant trees, and all of them planted trees until uh, very, very late in their in their life. Ohioans uh, have always recognized the importance of trees. Uh, they're critical to our environmental health, beneficial to our mental and, and physical health as well. Uh, Ohio leads the nation with 242 cities, villages, and townships that participate in Arbor Day's Foundation Tree City USA program, which recognizes communities practicing and investing in sound urban forestry. Ohioans have traditionally celebrated Arbor Day by planting trees together. Uh, obviously, we can't do that, but this is something that we all can continue to do uh, as a family, as you saw there, uh, or as individuals. Uh, planting a tree, uh, to me, symbolizes a faith in the future and, and optimism uh, and looking forward to, uh, as we go through this COVID-19 crisis, looking forward to uh, a, better, a better day. We have some good news, uh, a couple things of good news today. I want to start with foster care. Um, over the next three months, uh, a little over 200 young people will turn 18 and they will age out of foster care in Ohio. Today I'm announcing uh, the state of Ohio will cover the cost for all of these young people to stay in care until this pandemic ends. Uh, for many of these young people, their future looks uncertain because of COVID-19 whether their plan was to start a career or to pursue higher education. Uh, this program that I'm announcing today will provide them uh, with a safety net during these uh, very difficult times. We're also making this option available for the young people in our Bridges program, which is our foster care to age 21 program. Our young people turning 21 over the next few months can stay in Bridges, which will help them maintain their housing, their jobs, and their education. Uh, these changes that we are making will ensure that no child leaves chi no child leaves foster care during this pandemic without a safe place to call home. So I encourage uh, county children's service agencies, uh, juvenile courts, foster care youth uh, to take advantage of this new opportunity. And I want to thank the young people on Ohio's Youth Advisory Board who came up with this idea to help their brothers and sisters who are in foster care. I gave a shout out the other day to uh, Susan Conover, who was a graduate of Akron. 
Uh, I want to mention that uh, Susan has worked in the area of Wick uh, up in northern Ohio in the Cleveland area for many, many years. And so I think it's appropriate that we uh, salute today uh, the men and women who work uh, in WIC, which is the Women's Infants and Children's Program. Um, they do a, an amazing job. Uh, collectively, they're helping young families stay fed, healthy, uh, and on track. Our WIC professionals are showing up every day to provide mothers and children in need with food, baby formula, counseling referrals to programs such as home visiting. So to all of our WIC workers out there, I salute you. I thank you. Um, Thank you for what you're doing uh, every every single day. If you're expecting a child or have children, uh, you may be eligible for WIC. Uh, to learn more about this, it is signupwic.com, signupwic.com. I also want to thank today um, our Developmental Disabilities Direct Support Professionals. Uh, we remain grateful. Uh, for these essential workers who play the critical role in supporting daily, uh, every day, Ohioans with developmental disabilities. Uh, they're making life better uh, for our friends in the developmental disability community. They help ensure that they stay healthy and safe and are on the front lines, and they are on the front lines each and every day. We appreciate and recognize their vital role. Uh, every uh, Tuesday, the prison, our prison system uh, comes up with new data as far as the inmates. Um, the, I'm behind a couple of days in announcing this, but this was as of Tuesday. Uh, 336 inmates were released in the previous week. 336 inmates, that was a drop in, in the count. Uh, the drop in the count for the for the total of the past five weeks is 844, and we'll have new numbers uh, on on Tuesday, which I will try to share with you on Tuesday. Yesterday it was great to have uh, Dr. Mark Weir with us. I appreciated uh, what he did and he talked about the science that underlies our collective efforts to slow the spread of the coronavirus. What he talked about showed us how vital it is that we continue our efforts at social distancing, uh, wearing masks, washing our hands, uh, and restricting our exposure uh, to, to other individuals and certainly staying away from larger groups. Uh, to build on that today, I want to talk about two other very essential uh, components that further build the foundation for our ability to carefully, um, inch by inch, begin to reopen Ohio. Um, the components I want to talk about today are testing and tracing. Uh, we're talking today about increased testing capacity and increased contact exposure tracing. Let me first talk about testing capacity. And I've talked about this uh, many times before and the importance of getting more testing in Ohio. Uh, we have some very good news uh, that I want to share with all of you today about testing. And then I want to talk about why that is really so very important. 
Ohio, like other parts of the country, um, has experienced some shortages in testing. Um, we've not been able to have as robust testing as we wanted. Uh, this has been due to a number of reasons. Uh, two of those um, are, are the following. Uh, one uh, is not having enough swabs, so when the test is actually taken from, from the person. Uh, and two is that the laboratory did not have enough reagent and access to reagent. Um, this has been a huge problem in Ohio, and I know from talking to other governors that uh, some of them have experienced the same problem. So let me talk about reagent for a moment uh, and share this good news with you. Uh, reagent has been referred to as kind of the secret sauce uh, that is needed to tell if a sample has COVID-19 or, or not. Uh, earlier this week, I announced that the FDA approved an additional reagent made by the company Thermal Fisher. Um, that came after I had a conversation uh, with Vice President Pence um, and also after I had a conversation uh, with the folks from FDA. Uh, so that was a, a major breakthrough. Uh, this is a new reagent uh, that just uh, got approval on Monday uh, from the FDA. So we're very happy uh, about that. Um, you recall earlier in this week uh, that I announced that I had asked Governor, former Governor Celeste and former Governor Taft to head up a group uh, to really do everything that they could uh, to expand testing uh, in the state of Ohio. Um, they have been very successful uh, in, a, in a very short period of time, and a lot of things came together, and so I want to thank them. Uh, I want to thank them uh, for what they did, but I also want to thank our team uh, who worked with them. And I know uh, the two governors were on calls very, very late at night for several nights this week and really did a, an amazing job. Um, Governor Taft, Governor Celeste this week had a major breakthrough working with Thermal Fisher. Um, that will really substantially, substantially expand our testing capacity in Ohio. Uh, after their work, uh, I had a direct conversation uh, with Thermal Fisher CEO Mark Casper, and we now have an agreement with this company. Uh, this is an exciting new partnership, and we look forward to working with the Thermal Fisher team. And by the way, they have 1,500 employees in the state of Ohio. Uh, so while their headquarters is not based here, we, we consider them an, an Ohio company, and we're very happy about this agreement. Let me, and I'll talk in a moment about what that's going to mean, but I also want now to talk about the other challenge we faced, uh, and that is at the other end of this, at the beginning, uh, and that is the necessity to have swabs, and swabs that are the special kind of swabs that are needed to take the sample from the patient. We have experienced a shortage of swabs in Ohio, and really what we've been able to do is to come up with an Ohio solution to this. Um, Ohioans, once again, are, are stepping up, and I want to share this with you. As a result of collaborative efforts through the Ohio Manufacturing Alliance to fight COVID-19, Rowe Dental Laboratory in Cleveland will manufacture up to one million swabs to support our testing efforts.
Rodental Dental Laboratory usually produces dental restorations such as crowns, dentures, and dental surgical guides. The Manufacturing Alliance helped Roe Dental secure the specifications to manufacture swabs, and they got that from Form Labs, a 3D printing company in Toledo. Form Labs was the original production partner of Ohio State and Battelle for swabs. However, given our significant demand, more swabs are needed and were needed. That's where Roe Dental comes in. They're the newest partner with the Manufacturing Alliance to help us meet our need. Roe has invested in more than 36 additional 3D printers, nearly doubling its fleet, and will bring nearly 100 employees back to work to produce swabs around the clock, all the while practicing good, safe distancing. That is great news. So I want to thank B.J. Kowalski, uh, president of Roe Dental, for providing these much-needed supplies for their fellow Ohioans. Because of their efforts and others, Ohio will be producing a million swabs in the coming weeks. Public-private partnerships like this represent how, here in Ohio, we are, in fact, all in this together. And we believe that these efforts will not only increase our capacity to test by the end of May, but they will provide us with a stable supply chain. So let me outline what the goal is, uh, what we believe uh, this new partnership and the swabs uh, will end up allowing us to do. Beginning this coming Wednesday, our capacity will be at least 7,200 tests per day. That number will grow in a week beyond that. May 6 to 1,500 per day. Uh, by May 13th, it will be 18,800 per day. And by May 27th, 22,000 per day. Uh, as you can tell, this will dramatically increase our ability to test, particularly in the priority areas. And let me talk about those priority areas. We will have a greater ability uh, to go into more nursing homes, do sampling in those nursing homes. Uh, one of the concerns that we all have uh, is any congregate care living facility. And nursing homes uh, are certainly an area that we have a great deal of concern. So we're going to be able to get much more aggressive in regard to protecting people uh, in our nursing homes. Second, uh, this will give us, this capacity will give us a much better opportunity to deal with hot spots wherever uh, they occur, where we have a breakout. We will be able to move in and do the appropriate testing and the other things that we need to do. Uh, we'll also be able to focus on other congregate care living settings, homeless shelters, treatment centers, developmental disability homes. Next, we'll be able, better able to make sure food and grocery workers and employees in essential manufacturing in Ohio are healthy and not spreading the disease. As you can tell, many, many things that we're going to be able to do with this. And finally, what I want to talk about next is the additional thing that's going to allow us to do. And that is to allow us to stand up a very robust, very aggressive contact exposure tracing system in the state of Ohio. And so I want to talk uh, for a moment uh, about this. And I've asked uh, our Department of Health Medical, our Department of Health Medical Director, Dr. Mark Hurst, 
to join us on Skype today to help explain to the people of Ohio exactly how this tracing system works, how we can trace um, the virus, and why it is so important in helping us go after and attack the virus. Uh, frankly, what I like about this and why I'm so excited is it's going to enable us to really go on the offensive uh, as we attack the virus. The virus will stay, uh, but when we separate people uh, and when we're able to make sure that someone who has it does not spread it to others, that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, before we talk to Dr. Hurst, I want to again thank all Ohioans. Thank you uh, for what you have done. Uh, you've been absolutely amazing. You have achieved a great deal, uh, and it's because of what you have done and not done the last few weeks. You have gotten us to where we are today. You've done this the way, the Ohio way. Uh, we've done it together. Ohioans are fighters. We now have the ability to really go on the offensive against this enemy. That means we're going to, to track it down. We're going to isolate it, and we're going to go after it. And the way we kill it is making sure it does not spread to another person. So when we, that person is in a situation where they're not spreading it, that's a great, great victory. We're going to isolate it, kill it, because if it doesn't have anyone to come into contact with, it simply cannot spread. This is an aggressive strategy, but I think it fits Ohio, and I think it fits our attitude of how we deal with problems. Contact exposure tracing is one of the strongest weapons we can employ to help our families, our friends, and ourselves stay healthy. This is going to all be done in a, in a voluntary way um, where we can take some control over this disease. By stopping the spread, we are protecting others. We are protecting ourselves. Contact tracing is one tool. It works along with our other efforts. Um, does not replace anything. But it's another thing, another tool in our toolkit uh, to go along with the social distancing, to go along with washing our hands, to go along with in public wearing a mask. Uh, these are all things that are very important. And today we have an additional tool. I'm going to also mention uh, that We are partnering uh, with Partners in Health, and I mentioned them uh, several days ago. A group based in Massachusetts started uh, by someone I've known for a long time, and that's Paul Farmer. Um, friend, I've known Dr. Farmer for many years from his work in Haiti uh, on the AIDS problem and on other uh, medical problems. Partners in Health is a world-renowned organization that works to protect communities and will we will bring them in uh, to Ohio uh, to help us on the tracing program. I'm going to now ask Dr. Hurst uh, to help us explain this. And, Dr., uh, what I'm going to do, how you doing? 
Good to see I'm you. I'm doing fine. Thank you, Governor. Good to see you. You, you have a, a pretty lively mask there, I see. Pretty, pretty colorful. Absolutely. We, we should all be wearing them in public. That's good. Very, very good. Well, I'm going to, Doctor, you will not be able to see me, but I'm going to kind of describe what I'm doing. And I want, I'm doing this for our viewers. And uh, first of all, I hope everyone excuses uh, my penmanship. It's not very good. Um, I, I, was, I was told that many, many different years in school. It has not gotten any better, as anybody who's gotten a note from me or a letter from me knows. But I'm going to give it a shot here. So, Doctor, let's assume we've got... Um, Okay, we're going to call, we got a guy by the name of Bill, and I, put him, I placed him in the center of the, of the board here, and let's say Bill has symptoms, um, and then uh, he is found to be positive. Let's put a big positive here. Uh, you want to walk us through uh, starting with when Bill has symptoms, maybe what Bill should do. Uh, and then we'll talk about we'll get into the how the tracing system actually works. So let's say yeah. Bill, let's say Bill's got uh, he's come down with symptoms. He's he's very suspicious. What's he do then? And what's the next step for Bill? So if Bill develops symptoms. For instance, he notes that he has a fever or shortness of breath or a cough. Then the first thing he should do is contact his healthcare provider and then ask his healthcare provider what he needs to do. And the healthcare provider may then say, it sounds like you need some testing. You may have uh, COVID-19. At that point, Bill should really try to isolate. If he has to have testing, he should wear a mask when he leaves his house so as not to spread the disease that he has to anybody else. And he should do all the things that you mentioned earlier in terms of washing his hands and the usual infection control things. And then he would go have the test, which would have results back fairly promptly, the way things are going currently, uh, within a couple of days generally. But he should really start to isolate at the point where his doctor says you may have COVID. And that means that he should stay, he should really be away from everybody else. Uh, he should be isolated in his house. He shouldn't have contact with his family or friends. Ideally, he would have his own bathroom. Uh, so he'd really be separated from uh, everybody else at that point. And then he would need to isolate until uh, it was safe for him to not do so, which would mean that he didn't have symptoms, that it had been at least seven days since he developed symptoms, uh, and he had not had a fever and it had improvement in respiratory symptoms for at least 72 hours. Okay. But his health department would help him with that. Okay, let's, let's uh, say Bill gets the results back and it's positive. And then... So Let's let's in, let's put up here our our community. Uh, I'm going to write up here our community health worker working out of the local All right. We'll 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 call uh uh we'll call the health worker Sally. How's that? All right. So we've got the health we got the community health worker right up here. And what would what what does she do at that point after knowing that Bill is 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 positive? So when she when she found out that Bill had a positive result, she'd reach out to Bill, make sure that he was isolating, and then she'd have a conversation with him about who he may have been in contact 
not only while he was ill, but for the 48 hours before he was ill. Because we know that people shed the virus for about 48 hours or so, up to 48 hours uh, before they first become ill. So all of those individuals that he may have come in contact with that time uh, could be at risk for contracting COVID-19. She'll really do a pretty extensive interview with him. It could take half an hour, 45 minutes, and really go back with him to try to jog his memory about where he was, who he'd had contact with, how close those contacts had been, and then determine whether any of those individuals needed to be contacted themselves and informed that they would be at risk for COVID-19. Okay, let's, and this, that, that is done by phone? That's a phone interview, phone, yes. Phone interview. Uh, let's let's assume we've got uh, let's so assume we've got three people up here. Um, let's let's do uh, let's do Mike. We'll do Peter. Uh, we'll do uh, let's do Anna. Okay. And what is the standard when that's this interview is going on with? community health worker with Bill, what's the criteria, uh, and I think you mentioned this, but I want to go back to it, what's the criteria? Let's, let's say Bill, for example, um, you know, he went to um, uh, the grocery store uh, during that period of time, or he may have uh, gone and gotten gasoline or something, uh, and maybe he also uh, walked over and talked to his neighbor. So how do you determine what, what's the standard by which these people are, you're going to try to contact these? How, how does somebody get into this box, Mike, Peter, and Anna? What's the, what's the standard of, of contact? Yeah, so it really varies a lot, and, and it's based upon both how close the person was to other people and how long that exposure had been. So let's say Bill did go to the grocery store and wanted to pick up milk the community health worker would say, well, tell us about that experience. Tell us what happened with that. And Bill might say, you know, I went in, it was about 6.30 in the morning. There was hardly anybody in the store. I picked up my milk. I may have passed by somebody really quickly during that time, but I was, I was wearing a mask. I did self-checkout, so I didn't see a cashier or anything. That would not be an appreciable contact, and that person wouldn't need to be pursued in any way. If he talks to his neighbor and they kept 10 feet apart or so, that really would not be an appreciable contact. If his neighbor came over and they had dinner together and neither of them were wearing a mask and they were within a few feet of each other for an hour or so, that would be an appreciable contact. So uh, that person would then be informed that they had likely been exposed to COVID-19 and that they need to quarantine for 14 days. And so what would be the, what, is appreciable contact, is that the term, or what would be the term that you're looking for here? Yeah, the technical term is close contact. Okay. Okay, so the health worker has now determined that Bill had contact with Mike, Peter, and Anna, and what, uh, what happens next? So then there would be outreach to each of those individuals, and, and they would be told that, you know, you've had contact with somebody uh, who has confirmed COVID-19, and you really need to quarantine for the next two weeks. And you shouldn't go out of the house, and during that period of time, you need to check for symptoms and check your temperature twice a day. 
Uh, there's some mo monitoring that occurs with that. Uh, and generally, that's done electronically at this point, that people can just send a text message to a, to a site and say, check myself today, no temperature, no symptoms, things seem to be going okay. However, if during that 14 days they start to experience symptoms, then they need to go the same route Bill did. They need to contact their healthcare provider, tell them that they're experiencing symptoms, and then follow the advice of their healthcare provider regarding uh, isolation and testing. Okay, does that pretty much explain how this, how this works? You know, Governor, there are a million nuances because there are so many different circumstances with it, but those are really the fundamentals of how it goes about happening. And, and this is not a new procedure. This is a, a kind of a standard procedure. Is that right or is it new? Oh, yeah. We do this all the time. This has been done for decades with a variety of infectious diseases. Uh, we do this regularly with tuberculosis and other kinds of infectious diseases that are of great public health concern. So this is not a new process. What is new is the volume that we have. And my understanding is that uh, we, we think our goal is about uh, 1,750 people who will be involved in doing this. That's the last figure I saw. I know it's roughly. That, yeah, that's, that's the last figure I heard, too. I, I mean, when you consider that so far we've had uh, 15,000, somewhat over 15,000 uh, um, confirmed cases at this point, we can see that's a lot of volume and to do this kind of follow-up with that number of people really requires a substantial workforce. And what has been um, the experience uh, as far as, I mean, because th this is all voluntary, and, and so what's been the experience of compliance uh, with, you know, f first of all, you start with Bill, um, who's been exposed, and then you trace it down and you go over to Mike, Peter, and Anna. Um, what's been our, our history? What's the history of Ohioans complying with that and saying, yeah, I'll talk to you. And yes, I will, yeah. I will follow, I will follow the, the, the directions here. The response has really been outstanding. Um, you know, I, I think most people know they want to protect themselves, but they want to protect their family, their friends, their other loved ones, and other ones in the community. Uh, I checked with our legal counsel just earlier today about how many circumstances there had been where we had concerns about people not doing it, and uh, she said really less than less than ten or so out of all of those fifteen thousand contacts that have been in place. So people are really adhering to this very closely. That's great. Anything else, doctor, that we should know about uh, how this how this works? Uh, we're we're excited now to have a, a lot of the, a lot of testing. I know we're we're standing up a, a big group of, of community health workers uh, who are going to go out and and do this. And of course, you're already you're already doing this now. Uh, we're just trying. We're just talking about uh, dramatically expanding the scope of of how this is going to work. Well, at risk of sounding like a broken record here, um, the testing and the tracing are uh, tools that we'll be augmenting and adding to the toolbox, but they don't replace the other tools that are already in place that people have been doing such a good job with, including washing their hands frequently and, and doing a good job with that, really washing their hands for 20 seconds uh, when they do so with soap and water, to clean and disinfect the, the frequently touched surfaces, covering cough and sneeze, not touching face, eyes, mouth, uh, maintaining a six-foot 
distance from one another. A mask does not mean you shouldn't keep maintaining that six foot distance. You still should do that. And wear a mask. And when you wear the mask, please wear it properly. You know, when I'm out in public, I see some people who are wearing a mask, but they wear it like under their nose like this. A mask really needs to cover both the mouth and nose. Uh, and so that's really how people should wear it. Like that. Awesome. Doctor, thank you very much. Uh, Lieutenant Governor. Thanks, Governor. It's uh, great to actually see Dr. Hurst. I, I've been uh, hearing him for a long time, but uh, today we actually get a chance to, to see him, uh, which is great. I have uh, just a couple items to cover. I, and, and then at the end, we'll have a video uh, that, that I want to share uh, when we're through with the questions from the press. You know, as I listened to the governor talk and Dr. Hurst talk, um, it, it's really, I really feel like Ohio is back on the offense. And watching the NFL draft last night, knowing that we were, you know, the limited amount that I could, I, I was, it pr brought me back into my sports analogies, which I, I often like to, to share. And governor likes baseball and I like football. Uh, and, and so we, we use these, but you know, every winning strategy has an offensive strategy and a defensive strategy, and they all require teamwork. And that's exactly what you just heard described. Uh, the testing and tracing are incredibly important. It's not that we're focused on testing and tracing people, but it's the only way that we can really track down the coronavirus. That's, you know, we are its hosts, and that's the only way we can find it. And, and, and it is voluntary, but it's the only way, if we want to stop coronavirus, we gotta, we got to be a, you know, a team in this effort, and we need your help. Don't consider this a mandate. Consider it a service for you and your loved ones and the people you care about uh, and, and all of us as a society, a tool to help uh, really uh, hunt it down, to isolate it, and to kill it. That, that's what we're talking about. That's the offense. That's what we want to do uh, with the coronavirus, because once you do that, it can't spread. If it's alive and it's in us, we're the ones that spread it. You, you, you isolate it and you kill it and it's done. It's, it can't harm anyone else. And, and you combine this with the social distancing, the, the masks and the disinfectant. Uh, you put these all together and Ohio has a winning strategy. We have a winning strategy to play offense and defense and to beat the coronavirus. And, and, um, because we're not going to be able to just wait this out. It's not going to go away. It's going to be there uh, in our world for a long time, uh, for all, throughout 2020. And we need to learn to live our lives with it, in it. We need to be wary of it, but we can't live in fear of it. And that's you know, what is outlined today, a strategy to put Ohio back on the offense against the coronavirus, protecting both our lives and our livelihoods, and, and uh, I'm super excited about the way that, the, that this came together. Uh, governor had just great ideas on how to, one of the things, one of the strengths Governor DeWine has is how you bring people together uh, to help uh, get them uh, in the same room or this way on the same conference call and, uh, and solve a problem, and, and this came together this week in, uh, in an amazing way, and uh, I'm I think all of us should be excited about this news today. Additionally, I have one other thing that I think it's important to cover. I was uh, on the phone last night with Secretary of State Frank LaRose, 
And as you know, uh, this coming Tuesday, that's the day that all of our votes get counted for the election. And he shared with me some information that I want to share with you to, to put in perspective, because if you, if you have requested it, there's 1.7 million people who have requested a ballot to vote by mail, but as of right now, only 1 million of them have actually cast their ballots. So we know that there are still you know, 700,000 ballots out there that haven't been returned yet, and it's time to get that done. Uh, and there's still time to request your ballot. If you want to do that, you got to do it quickly. You got to get a hold of your Board of Elections today and, and get that done. And remember that you have until Monday night, until Monday, to get this postmarked if you're going to use the post office. And it's getting a little late uh, in the process. And so if you want to have that security of knowing that your ballot actually is going to get there in time uh, to be counted, know that you can also drop it off at your local Board of Elections. Every Board of Elections uh, has a secure drop box that either you or a family member can drop that ballot in uh, if you can't get it postmarked before Monday. Uh, you have until 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday to get this done. So we know there are a lot of ballots floating around out there. You may have, you may have filled it out and not mailed it in. Uh, it's time to get this done. Election day, uh, when votes are counted, it will be on Tuesday. Uh, and, and deliver that ballot and get it back. Uh, and I know this because during my time, and just think about all the things that are out there. We know that there are presidential primaries and, and things like that, but there are 482 local issues on the ballot, including your schools, your libraries. These things matter. Uh, and I know this, and Frank LaRose knows this, there are so many elections every year that are literally decided by one vote. Uh, there are hundreds of elections that I know of over the course of time that I was Secretary of State and Frank has been there that these elections uh, are, are decided by one voter tied. And so get that ballot in, uh, make your voice heard, uh, something to, uh, to keep in mind as we head into the weekend. Governor? Thank you very much. We have questions. Andy Ludlow with the Columbus Dispatch. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, former Secretary of State, was just discussing the election. Uh, Secretary of State LaRose has said due to problems with mail delays, he has concerns about A, ballots being delivered, and B, being returned. He says uh, people who don't get ballots in time should go vote in person at their Board of Elections. We canceled one primary election due to the pandemic. Now we're asking people to go out and vote. Uh, isn't that a bit of a dichotomy? Well, I think it, it's a very, first of all very different different situation, uh, and we have one Secretary of State. So I'm not going to speak for the Secretary of State. Uh, he's the one that's running the the election. Um, you know, most people are going to be able to vote absentee. Uh, I think the message from uh, Lieutenant Governor and the Secretary of State is there are other things that you can do. Uh, certainly, you can do if you do not, you know get that ballot, you can then go to the board of elections. Um, but I don't, I would not anticipate you're going to see a lot of people go to the board of elections in the sense that there's not the huge crowds that we would have seen on, on election day. So no, I don't think that's inconsistent. Um, you know, we avoided um, I, what I think would have been a disaster uh, with 35,000 poll workers, some of them older Ohioans, 
sitting there for 13 hours and working uh, with many, many Ohioans coming in. Uh, I think that would have been the wrong thing to do. And, and the further we get into this epidemic, uh, I think the, the more right that decision looks like. Um, so I think it was the right, it was the right decision. Um, people have many opportunities to vote, but uh, in the cases that, you know, Frank LaRose described, being able to go to the Board of Elections and do that uh, it would appear to me would be of minimal risk. Uh, we would advise people to, to wear a mask when they go in, um, but I, w I would not anticipate that there would be, you know, a large number of people there as you would have seen actually on Election Day, the normal Election Day. What I was suggesting is that there is a drop box where you can, you can drop without ever coming in contact with another person your ballot. Uh, I don't want to contradict the Secretary of State. I don't know what other guidance that he is providing on that. But what I was suggesting is that you can go to the, to the Board of Elections and take that absentee ballot you've received and drop it off uh, in the Dropbox. So th those, what, what we're suggesting are things that you can do without coming in contact with another person. We'll let the Secretary of State explain anything beyond that that, that we're not aware of. But, uh, John, let me ask you, former Secretary of State, uh, that, that Dropbox, you could drop in until when? You can drop your ballot off until 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday night. Actual so election that, day, actual then? Actual election day, yes. Okay. Thank you. Jim Hottie from WHIO-TV. Governor, could you give us a preview of what's coming on Monday? So many people are still asking us about the status of the stay-at-home order. Will that be extended or stopped? Um, can our businesses reopen? Can I go visit my grandkids? Uh, all of those questions we're being bombarded with. Can you tell us what's coming Monday at all? Well, I think it's better to wait till Monday when we can do it in, in a whole and people can see the whole the whole sweep of what, what we're trying to do. Um, I thought it was important to be able to talk today about the testing uh, because the testing is a component part of our ability to uh, deal with this virus. It is a tool that we have had, but we've not had it up to a level uh, like we are now able to do it. And I, I outlined very specifically how this is going to be phased in, but in a couple of weeks it's going to be dramatically, dramatically up. The first week by Wednesday we get a big, big push. Uh, so that's a real tool that's going to enable us to uh, be able to have one more tool as we go after the coronavirus. Um, you know, the things that we are looking at uh, in, in making these decisions um, we obviously want to get people working again. We want to get people back to as normal a, a life as possible. At the same time, uh, you know, we have to be careful. And uh, we don't want to see spikes come up in the future, nor do we want to see us have to pull back things. Uh, so we're going to start uh, with, with those things where uh, we have the best ability uh, to be able to um, protect people and where businesses have the best ability to protect their employees and, and businesses have the best ability to protect anybody else who comes in there. So we're going to start off with that. We're going to try to lay out kind of a schedule, a hopeful schedule. Uh, a lot of this is going to depend on exactly, uh, you know, what is occurring with, with the virus, uh, how we're doing. Uh, but Ohioans have put us into this position because of their uh, really... Um, 
strong efforts uh, in staying home, strong efforts in, in social distancing. Um, and so we're going to be able to do some start down the pathway of, of trying to get some businesses up and running. And we'll outline, we'll try to outline uh, kind of what the procedure will be and what the process will be as we move forward. Thank you, Governor. Good afternoon, Governor. It's Laura Bischoff, Dayton Daily News. I had some questions about um, the, the contact tracing and the, uh, and the um, testing. Um, what is our current testing capacity? If we're going to go up to 22,000 uh, by the end of May, where are we right now? How many of these 1,700 uh, contact tracers have been hired and by who? And if the state could please promptly provide... Been what? Uh, and if the state could please promptly provide copies of the contracts with Thermal Fisher and Rodell Dental, that would be helpful. Or I, I, I apologize. I was not getting all that. Uh, the, the, the question was, how many tests are we doing now? Okay, that was one. Second question was what? How many of the 1,700 contacts? contact tracers have already been hired and are they hired at the are, are the contract tracers hired by the local health departments or do they just materialize elsewhere let me, let me see if dr. Hurst is still on is dr. Hurst still available Eric uh, and let me start answering it uh, I don't know the numbers on tests I see them every day but I don't have it in front of me so I apologize for that we can certainly get you that um, as far as the uh, how many people have been hired and how will they be hired I, I think the way it's going to be set up uh, is they're going to work out of their you know local health departments um, we already have some of these people who are who are there and who are working on it now. Dr. Hurst, do you know out of the 1,750 people that we project that we're going to need to do this, uh, how many people are actually working today towards that? In that, in I, yeah, Governor, I, Governor, I am on. Um, so the contact tracing is almost, an ex almost exclusively a local health department function. So deployment to the local health departments is what would happen. Now, although we don't have the hired workforce right now, we do have a substantial volunteer workforce. So a number, as everyone is aware, medical students, medical schools needed to close down. Many health professional schools needed to close down. And so many of these schools have suggested to their students that this would be an important thing that they could be help, helpful with. So we have a program that has been going on linking those health profession students with local health departments to help them in their overall efforts efforts fighting the COVID-19 epidemic. Laura, I couldn't give you the exact number for that, uh, but, uh, but that is occurring right now. And I know that the Lieutenant Governor has pulled up on his iPad testing, and what are you showing there, John? Yeah, as far as current testing, Laura, the recent average daily number tested in Ohio is 3,728 a day. 3,728. If, if I could just chip in uh, again, it, it is at least in the hundreds of the volunteers who are in there. And again, this is to augment the force that already exists, which includes nurses, uh, other health department employees, and, and things of that nature, and epidemiologists. 
My third item was if we could please get copies of the contracts with Thermal Fisher and Rodell Dental. That would be helpful. Thank you. We can certainly supply that, sure. Kevin Landers, WBNS 10 TV. My question is for the governor. Uh, governor, we're getting emails from people who feel that by opening up businesses May 1, it forces them to make a choice between their health and their job. And they want assurances that if they don't feel safe coming to work, that their employer won't penalize them for that, especially those workers who work in places that don't offer sick leave. Can you address that, please? Well, part of what we're going to do, and we'll have this announcement on, on, on Monday, and we'll outline exactly where we're going to start with businesses opening up. But, you know, it's going to be a great emphasis on safety for the employees. Um, in fact, we're going to go further than we did in our first order in regard to what employees' protection they have. Um, so that protection is, is going to be in place. Uh, if companies cannot do that or don't do that, then they cannot open. John, you want to add anything to that since you've been working on yeah. that? Well, understand there are millions of people out there across Ohio who are already working safely under these standards. Everything that we're going to uh, talk about on Monday are, are businesses, are practices that businesses have already been operating where they've kept their employees safe. It follows CDC guidelines. It follows OSHA guidelines. It follows FDA guidelines. And it follows the you know, best practices that have been tried and tested around the globe. And so we've done a great deal of effort. We've put a great deal of effort into this because we know that if you want employees to come back and we know uh, that if you want customers to come back, that, that um, uh, you need to build that confidence. And that's what we're trying to do. But we also know that there are, there are some people who, for legitimate health reasons, um, may not feel comfortable going back. And, and we're encouraging employers to uh, accommodate them. Uh, we're, we are all in this together. We expect the employers to, to do their best job at accommodating people in, in, in this uh, environment that we're in. Hi, this is Molly Martinez with Spectrum News. We've heard a lot about how we're going to ramp up testing, but not much about what that actually looks like. If someone has symptoms or suspects they've already had COVID-19, how can they get tested if we're doing this en masse? Is this drive-through testing? Where can somebody go to get tested? Well, I'm going to ask Dr. Hurst again to jump in here, but, you know, the testing should you should first go, as the doctor said, to your physician, uh, wherever you get your, your health care. Uh, that physician, after you consult with that physician, uh, if you're in a situation where you need to be tested, the physician should be able to have that test done or tell you where you can get that test done. So, uh, you know, with the, uh, one of the challenges we faced uh, is not just the reagents at the lab, but not having enough swabs and everything spread throughout the state. So we're, with this, with this new deal that we have uh, in the new source of swabs, we think that that problem is going to disappear. 
uh, or certainly dramatically lessen, and we think that people will have more, you know, more opportunity to do that. So I don't know, Dr. Hurst, if you want to add anything to that at yeah, all. You're really right on target, uh, Governor. I, you know, physician te uh, testing happens on the order of a healthcare provider. So when those symptoms occur, that's why it's so important to contact the healthcare provider. So he or she can direct you to an appropriate place to have the specimen collected, and then they can receive those results back in a timely manner to help uh, help you deal with whatever problems you may be facing, whether it's COVID-19 or not. If Once we do have mass testing, people will still need a doctor referral to get a test. Well, that will be the, that would be the normal procedure. I mean, you know, people can, will certainly uh, the private health, the private uh, enterprise is is kicking in here some places, and uh, you know, people are being able to go different places and get tests. I don't know where that's going to go in the next two months. I can't predict where that is. I, what, what we're talking about is is the labs, uh, and we're going to be able to have this much more robust ability to test, which means that. Uh, as I said, we're going to be able to go in hot spots. We're going to be able to go into congregate care places more. Uh, we're going to be able to do this tracing uh, system and do it much more robust. Anything to add, add on that, Doctor? Well, you know, there are different reasons that testing is done, and, we, and both of them have been discussed in these news conferences before. One is for clinical reasons, for us to be able to diagnose somebody and appropriately provide treatment, isolation, and quarantine, as may be the case. The other is for surveillance reasons, and that's been discussed here previously also. So having greater capacity for testing is also going to give us greater capacity for surveillance in the general community to have an understanding of asymptomatic uh, individuals and to have what the real prevalence of COVID-19 is uh, in individual parts of the state and the state as a whole. Doctors can get a test. Licensed independent practitioners can order tests. So that would include nurse practitioners, physician assistants, uh, and other uh, independently licensed um, practitioners, medical practitioners. Hi, this is Laura Hancock from Cleveland.com. Just a couple questions about um, this, this contact tracing big effort that you guys are doing. First of all, what's the timeline on it? And second, is there a way when you get some of this data to extrapolate um, the the amount of coronavirus, you know, like the prevalence in Ohio? I'm sorry, the last, the last question was what? When you do, you know, this big effort, will there be a way to look at that data and do an estimate for what percentage of Ohio has coronavirus or what the prevalence is? Sure. I mean, the more tests, obviously, the more testing we get, the more data, better data we'll have, and we'll certainly share the that that data with with the public and through through the news media the more opportunity that we have doctor anything there doctor, no. you, you might you might want to talk about the two different types of testing because i think we're getting we're getting a little bit of confusion on what we mean by testing one to detect the coronavirus and then the other to do the serological or antibody testing you may want to just explain the difference and where we are with that yeah so Almost all of the testing that's going on right now is for clinical and public health purposes in terms of identifying people who are, who are experiencing COVID-19 
and then be able to uh, appropriately isolate and quarantine those to prevent the spread of the virus to others. The surveillance testing that I'm talking about, talking about would be in random individuals, and that could include either or both uh, screening for the virus itself using the uh, PCR testing that's going now, or testing for antibodies. And we really need uh, more and better developed tests for antibodies. Those are really not where they are with the testing for the virus itself. And that gives us an idea about the prevalence in the state uh, and where we are, how many individuals we have who are recovered from this, and to the point where we can reach herd immunity, meaning where enough individuals have experienced this and are immune that the risk for substantial spread uh, is greatly reduced in Ohio. Hello, Governor. Jim Province with the Toledo Blade. Um, the Corrections Commission of Northwest Ohio, that's a regional prison in Stryker that serves uh, multiple counties, they announced today that they're going to stop accepting inmates because they need space to segregate coronavirus positive inmates. One of the reasons for this is that they can't send inmates into the state system. What advice do you have for this jail and other local jails that are dealing with the same problem that you're dealing with at the state level? Uh, I'm not, I was not aware of that. Um, you know, I will, I will check on that and uh, we'll get back to you on that. Adrian Robbins, NBC4, and my question's for the governor. Um, I understand that the plan is coming on Monday to reopen, and a, a lot of work has gone into that plan. Are you also thinking of what to do if we do see a second wave of coronavirus cases? Is part of this plan how to mitigate that and, and maybe take steps back if we need to after we have reopened? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, I, I saw the same story or stories that you saw, um, and I think it brings home to us that uh, there's still a lot about this uh, virus that we do not know, that the experts um, do not know, uh, and how it comes back. Um, you know, the pandemic of 1918, a book I've read and reading, uh, certainly talked about different waves coming through. So. Uh, I don't think we, we know, uh, you know, we don't know for sure what's going to happen in the summer. Um, there's just a lot of things that we don't, we don't really know. But what I do know uh, is this testing and tracing program, uh, you know, is important. Uh, and it's important. It puts us in a better position. Uh, it can slow the spread down. Uh, it can isolate uh, this virus. Uh, and when the virus... It, depends upon moving from one person to the other to the other and when you break that and you break that uh, you certainly slow it down that particular virus as it moves as it moves around so what we talked about today with the robust testing uh, what we've talked about with the tracing uh, getting both of those up to full speed uh, in the next few weeks uh, is is very very important no matter what happens with with the virus you know what we hope we hope is that we don't have to go backwards. Uh, we don't want to open something and then close it. Uh, there's no guarantees in life. We'll see what happens, but that's why we're being cautious about how we open things. And all the while, um, I'll go back to Giamatti's question about what's coming on Monday. I mean, all the while, we're going to continue every single day to monitor hospital admissions, for example, to see exactly where we are going 
and uh, how we're doing in our battle with this virus. But what we're able to announce today, I think, is one more tool in the toolbox. Uh, but as Dr. Hurst has pointed out so very well, we have to keep doing, you know, the social distancing. Uh, we have to wear masks. We have to do those things. And as we start back and people go back out to enter the workforce, um, you know, we want to make sure that the place that they're working uh, has as many protections as are, are possible to, to deploy. different things to different people. Understand there's nothing that will be coming that we uh, haven't seen work on the ground in Ohio, okay? And think about, let's go back a month ago to when this happened. We put together safety standards then that were base, based on the, the best available information we had. Those businesses across the state have been operating safely under those, but we've both learned new things since then and we have more access to, to uh, other safety precautions that we didn't have then. We didn't have an abundance of face shields. We didn't have an abundance of masks. We didn't have hand sanitizer because it, we didn't have the capacity to do it. So understand, over the course of a month, the situation on the ground has vastly improved about how you can create a safe workplace for people to operate in. So that it's a really important part to know about this and to know that nothing that's coming hasn't already been effectively used in Ohio to keep workers and customers safe. Thank you. Hello, Ben Schwartz with WCPO in Cincinnati. Um, Governor DeWine, I want to ask you a question sent in by a viewer. Um, this viewer is a small business owner in Cincinnati and they want to know if you have any plans to address the insurance, in the insurance industry's reluctance to pay loss of income and business interruption claims. Um, they, in their own words, they say we blindly pay for these policies for lifetimes and assume that we will be covered when catastrophe hits. Yeah, I know that that, uh, from talking to small business, um, that that has been a, a real concern. That the business interruption, some of them felt that they had coverage, they should have had coverage, and they do not have coverage, or at least the insurance company is telling them now that they do not have coverage. Uh, I've asked our in insurance department to take a look at that, um, and I'll report back uh, what, what, they, what they tell me. Um, you know, again, this is a private contract, but, um, you know, we also uh, want to make sure people are being treated fairly. Um. My question is for Governor DeWine. Governor, this is Jack Windsor with WMFD-TV in Mansfield. Sir, many citizens are reaching out to us with a common issue, and that issue is agency. Who decides the who, what, when, where, how, and why? government or individuals. Nearly all who have reached out are frustrated, believing they're losing their personal agency. As one viewer pointedly asked, when are we going to start expecting and trusting people to do what's right on their own? Many eagerly await your Monday commitment of a plan, but today, sir, what can you say to viewers and citizens who are struggling with this issue? Well, I, th I think that, first of all, Ohioans have done a, a, a great job, and these have been individual decisions that Ohioans have made. 
uh, their whole by their free will uh, every single day. Uh, and as we go forward and we look beyond Monday, uh, again, people are going to have to make a lot of their own individual decisions. We're trying to look at the whole. Uh, we're trying to make sure that this virus doesn't spread any faster than, than it has to. And we're trying to protect people's lives. We're, we are in a situation where what an individual does not only affects them, not only their family, but affects a lot of other people or can. And so this is where, you know, we had to put out some orders uh, that would certainly not have been acceptable or uh, permissible in a normal time. Uh, this is an emergency, and it's an emergency where it's a health emergency. And in a health emergency, when one person's uh, actions or inactions can dramatically impact another's, uh, and sometimes multiple, 10, 20, 30 people maybe, um, then th that that balance that's always there between the individual's rights and, and public health, um, you know, some of these orders can have to be made. But as, as we move forward and as we open up more and we get back to normal, uh, part of what we're going to be trying to do is to make sure people have the data, the facts, to make their own decisions. Um, I mean, some of the, the people who, who are older, uh, people who have a health problem, um, you know, are going to be making their own decisions. Are they going to go out? And, uh, you know, and if they go out, how are they going to go out? And how often do they go out? Um, you know, later on, uh, when we're back and playing baseball or football, people are going to have to make the decision, am I going to go into that situation? And so the more information that we can give people, the more they'll be able to make their individual choices. And so the, the further along we go, uh, obviously we, we want to move as much as humanly possible to individual choices. Hello, this is Tara Morgan with ABC6 News. Is there an estimate on the number of small businesses that simply won't make it with capacity restrictions and the such? And also, where's Dr. Acton? Uh, Dr. Acton will be back Monday. I told you she, she t took a couple days off, and uh, she will be back Monday uh, when we make our announcement. Um, I don't think I, I don't think anyone can calculate the number of small businesses that have been impacted. Uh, I, I know that small businesses have been hurt. Uh, some of them uh, tragically will not be able to come back. Um, the other thing is we start back in, um, you know, some businesses will not, uh, we'll have to see how they do. Um, part of what I think we have an obligation to do is to do everything that we can to assure the public that when they start back and go into a small business or a large business, but uh, stay with the small businesses, when they go in, that they're safe. And because what individuals believe, what the consumer believes, um, 
is, is so very, very important. If they don't think they're going to be safe, they're not going to go to the business. If they think they're going to be safe, then they're much more likely to go into, into that business. So part of what we're trying to do is have the, the rollout of the businesses coming back with enough safeguards that people can look up and say such and such business is open. Well, they, they must have the safeguards in place. Let's go. Let's go see, check this out or check that out. So I think that's what we can do as we're putting these things together because it's not just open everything up or open whatever we're going to open up and people will not necessarily automatically go back to those businesses. They've got to feel there's a second element and that element is what kind of confidence a consumer has. And that's we've got to build that confidence back. And that's a, an essential part of what, what has to happen. And part of that confidence comes from, am I safe when I go to this business? That's the same way with workers. Uh, you know, workers have to feel safe when they go back in, in, into a company to work or they're not going to go back. This is Spencer Hickey with Hanna News Service. I know you're holding off on the details until Monday, but would you be able to comment, Governor, on the level things might be different for rural versus urban areas at this point? Uh, I, no, I can't comment on that today. Hi, Governor. Julie Carsmythe at the Associated Press. Um, President Donald Trump is holding uh, briefings, obviously, on the virus, as you are, and um, some of the medical information he's providing uh, is being questioned, debunked, um, challenged uh, by medical and scientific professionals, and some people are uh, saying it's unhelpful. Are you seeing evidence in the state of Ohio that um, any misinformation being uh, disseminated in those briefings is uh, harming Ohioans, confusing Ohioans, or do you have any concerns yourself about those briefings? Well, I certainly don't see all his briefings. Uh, you know, I, I see parts of them usually uh, when I get home. Uh, at, at night, so I don't I don't have any really comment about that. Uh, one of the great things in this country is we have we have uh, a robust uh, uh, press corps uh, in in Washington as well as in Columbus, uh, and you know uh, they're never uh, bashful uh, about talking about uh, you know if they think the president or the governor or anybody else is uh, uh, you know doesn't have it right, and that's fine. I mean that's what we. That's what we expect. We expect a, a, a strong First Amendment. So I, I, I don't think it's like whatever I say or he says is just put out there and it's not rebutted. I mean, things are, you know, things are vigorously debated and discussed uh, every night on TV and, and uh, in, in, in the papers. So, um, you know, that's, I think that's the climate in which this, this all is taking place. And... Uh, uh, you know, probably 80% of the news today is about the coronavirus, and that's very understandable. Uh, but you get a lot of different views out there. So that's it's the marketplace of ideas. Uh, so I think Ohioans are, are, are sorting things out and making their, their own judgments. And I found Ohioans uh, have a lot of common sense, and they can, they can kind of figure things out. Thank you. This is Jackie Borchert from the Cincinnati Enquirer. I've heard from many small business owners who have been listening to your every word on what they might be able to do to open. 
uh, especially about cleaning and having masks for their employees, but they can't find cleaners and they can't find masks. What is the state going to do to help these businesses get the tools they need to be able to provide a safe workplace environment? Well, I think the market will eventually work its way out, but you're right. Um, you know, I've talked to people who can't find enough sanitizer. Uh, I've talked to people who cannot find masks. Um, you know, the production of the mask is, is up. Uh, it's up in Ohio. Uh, we are doing everything we can to secure masks uh, that we can make available uh, to people. But uh, ultimately, uh, like most things in this country, the, the marketplace is going to take care of that. Um, you know, any requirement that we, we have uh, obviously is conditioned upon people being able to secure the item. But, um, you know, we would, we would hope that people would make all due diligence and effort to actually secure the, the item. Um, but that's a, you know, that's a... So, question uh, Fran asked me this morning as we were talking about, she heard me talking about different things, and she said, well, what if people can't find it? So, um, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's very, very understandable, and it's a very, it's a very logical question. I don't know, John, do you have anything to add to that? But, yeah. Well, m most of the things, you know, we have mandated things and we have best practices. Best practices are things that, for example, if you can take the temperature of your employees every day, that would be great because that's a really early warning sign to be able to tell if somebody's sick. But we understand everybody doesn't have those things. So we're, we're creating best practices. And understand, you know, a mask doesn't necessarily have to be something that looks exactly like this. It's some type of face covering uh, of, which, of which will prevent you from from discharging things that would land on a surface that somebody could touch and then get 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 um, and Pretty then simple. and then have the spread of, of, of a coronavirus if they had it. But but good old soap and water is one of the best things that you can do to uh, clean your hands and clean surfaces to make them make them safe. You know, one of the things we heard yesterday was just the physical act of of washing. Um, that physical act does in fact make a difference. This is a it's one that I've been wearing that Fran made. And actually, when I was leaving, uh, or last night, Fran was making a lot of these for our, our, our friends. And these are, you know, these are pretty simple. And, and again, it's, it's a protection for the other guy, uh, the other person. Uh, and if everybody's wearing them, obviously, we have, the, we have that double, double protection. Uh, Luis Gill with Ohio Latino TV. And my question is into the future, uh, Election Day, November. Is your team or yourself are having a plan A, plan B? I mean, this election, they were going to be controversial as it is without the virus. Now we're thinking about voting by mail. Is there another option, plan A, plan B, like having extended the election day by the weekend before, like Saturday and Sunday open up, and having the ability to have more people have the option to walk in and be present? I think that we really can't predict what November is going to bring or October or even September. I think we have a ways to go uh, in regard to that. In Ohio, of course, we have a, a robust four weeks 
uh, absentee balloting uh, that people will, and will have the opportunity to do that. So I, I think it's it's too early to make any real judgments about what what is is upcoming. Uh, I'll see if the former Secretary of State, uh, Lieutenant Governor, has anything to add to that. But yeah, thanks, Governor. Um, well, first of all, we already have voting by mail in Ohio. Uh, it has been part of our voting process. We've had voting by mail uh, shortly after Labor Day. Uh, Frank LaRose, our current Secretary of State, will will mail out uh, absentee ballot requests to everybody in the state. They have plenty of time to fill them out, send them in, so nobody in Ohio will have to go to a physical location to cast a ballot. Uh, and so we have, we have a lot of these. Ohio has a really all-of-the-above system, and I believe that we'll know more and the legislature will work with the Secretary of State to make sure we've got a great plan before then. But, but on, on uh, your question um, made me uh, uh, respond, or I'm going to use this opportunity to respond to something that, uh, that Randy Ludlow from the dispatch asked earlier about going to the Board of Elections to vote and that the Secretary was encouraging people to do that. I want to, I want to clarify that because I, I reached out during this news conference to the Secretary of State's staff who said, the only way, and this is what the legislature put in the law that when they reestablished it, the only way that you can go to the ballot or go to the Board of Elections and get a ballot is if you requested one and didn't receive it, you can go get a provisional ballot. But if you have not requested an absentee ballot, don't think that you're going to go to the Board of Elections and get one. That's not how it works. It's only for people that requested one and didn't get one they can go to the ballot, they can go to the Board of Elections and, and pick up that, that provisional ballot to cast a, a vote. Thank you very much. Hi everyone, Andy Chow with Ohio Public Radio and Television State House News Bureau. Hope you're all doing well. Um, just wondering, you know, with the announcement of the test and the expansion, uh, wondering what kind of role did the former governors, uh, Celeste and Taft, play? Uh, in to making that happen and is their job done or are they st still working on other efforts? Uh, we're not going to let them uh, retire again. I'm going to keep them uh, working on things. Uh, look, there's different types of testing uh, that we need to be more robust uh, in. So, you know, their role, th this thing kind of really came together much, much quicker than I had any clue it would. Um, I know they were on a number of calls. Uh, some of the calls were, were late. This was really pretty intense over a couple-day period of time. It just all kind of came together over a couple days. So we, we appreciate their role, but, uh, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to keep engaging them. Uh, and, you know, they both bring some real experience uh, to this and, um, you know, some real, real, real great, great background. Um, you know, if, if you look at, um, uh, John, I don't know if you recall the conversation. You can help me out here. But uh, they were, Governor Taft was involved in the Third Frontier, yeah, which, which, yeah. which played a role in this. And Governor Celeste was involved in another program. The Edison that, Center. The Edison Center. So these are two that were directly involved uh, when you look at uh, what we're doing in regard to the swabs, uh, so it's 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 kind of I don't know justice uh, that they were back uh, and and helped put this together with two programs that they were directly that they started, um, and so I thought it was, it's kind of it's kind of a neat thing really it's kind of a great kind of a great story. Thank you. 
and I was the last. Put this together with with the Schwabs at all, so wouldn't have happened. I was the last question. I'm going to turn to Lieutenant Governor Houston. Thank you, Governor DeWine. Uh, so when I went home recently, my wife was working on a project. Tina was working on a project with the Arts Council, and I didn't know much about it. Uh, but I learned about it when I walked in here today because it's uh, an, a, a video, the Arts Beacon of Light video, which my wife Tina uh, narrated, which has really been put together to help and encourage artists uh, during this difficult time. And so we'll, uh, we'll just take a look here and, and uh, a message to all the artists in the state. Hello, I'm Tina Husted, and I'm in my home art studio here in Columbus, Ohio. As both an artist and a board member of the Ohio Arts Council, I personally know that the arts often serve as a lifeline, a connector, and a glimmer of hope and inspiration when at times there may seem as if there is no light. The Ohio Arts Council believes that creating community in this time of physical distancing is now more important than ever. We need to support our artists, our creators, and our visionaries as we all process this changing world around us. That is why we are launching an exciting new project, the Ohio Arts Beacon of Light. It's an opportunity to give our artists a place to share, connect, and cope with the challenges presented by this pandemic. We hope to inspire you while giving artists an opportunity to share those emotions through a platform of connection, expression, and support. As I look behind me at my own art project I've been slowly working on, we recognize that often the value of true art, especially in times of uncertainty, lies not in the finished project, but in the process. We invite artists of all ages, working in all disciplines, to share their stories of the creative healing process. We want to see your artwork, hear your voices, and engage in the conversations that matter the most to you. These are difficult times, and we are facing many unknowns. And we know that for some of you, this may not be your time to create, but rather reflect and prepare for something amazing in the future, and that is completely understandable. But for those of you who are able to get into the studio and create, or if you can create art at home, we need your voice and talent more than ever. Please help us show that, like a beacon of light illuminating the darkness, the arts inspire hope and will guide a way forward. May God bless you, each and every one of you, and thank you for all you're doing to make your communities, our state, and our nation a better world. Very good. We'll see you all uh, Monday, 2 o'clock. Thanks a lot. Have a good weekend.